Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Today, we're going to spend the hour continuing a series we launched last week with The Atlantic, as that publication rolls out its project called Inheritance, a multi-part initiative that explores the legacy and experiences of black Americans that have been largely left out of our history books. Here on Detroit Today, we're highlighting this work by speaking with some of the writers who contribute to that series. Today, I'm joined by Van R. Newkirk II. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of the podcast Floodlines. His recent piece for The Atlantic is titled, American Democracy is Only 55 Years Old and Hanging by a Thread. And it's part of the publication series Inheritance. Van Newkirk II, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to start with the title because uh, I know what that means. I know what you're talking about when you say American democracy is only 55 years old. But I'm not sure that everybody does. Talk about what happened 55 years ago that perfected American democracy uh, in the way that uh, you're talking about it. Yeah, so uh, 55 years ago was uh, when America passed the Voting Rights Act. And that act, of course, was the one that guaranteed uh, the right to vote for Black Americans, especially in the South, and banned a lot of the ways that they had been disenfranchised uh, effectively uh, for generations. So for me, if you think about democracy as, as a uh, situation where everyone, regardless of uh, how they are born, their class or station at birth, is able to participate, then it's clear to me that it wasn't a, a democracy before uh, the 19th Amendment. It wasn't a democracy before the Voting Rights Act. And so uh, I wanted to reframe our conversation around democracy, around democratic norms, to understand that it's new and experimental in a way. Hmm. And uh, this happens at a time that there's also a lot of other change taking place and being discussed uh, in Washington and, and around the country. Of course, the Civil Rights Act was passed a year before the Voting Rights Act. But but talk briefly about the VRA's power in what it was intended to provide for African-Americans. After all, uh, the, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was passed almost 100 years before that, uh, and that was supposed to guarantee the right to vote for uh, uh, for for African Americans. So, talk about what the VRA was able to do that a constitutional amendment uh, by itself could not achieve. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed in the height of the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Era, and the reason that movement uh, had become so powerful, urgent, and necessary is because for almost 100 years after the passage of those Reconstruction Amendments uh, that ostensibly guaranteed the right to vote, Southern governments especially had developed what we call now Jim Crow. Uh, they developed a system of laws that skirted those constitutional uh, priorities and protections and used facially race-neutral language to bar Black folks from voting. So they instituted poll taxes, which you could not pay if you were, say, a poor Black sharecropper. They instituted uh, grandfather clauses saying you, the only way you could vote is if your grandfather had, had voted. So that obviously uh, disenfranchised Black folks whose grandparents had been enslaved um, and effectively disenfranchised their children, too. They, they, they instituted uh, literacy tests whereby uh, basically these you know Byzantine impossible tests tell me how many marbles are in this jar um, could stop you from being able to vote. And above all, even outside of all those official things, they created an atmosphere of fear and uh, oppression that made it so that even if you could qualify to vote, uh, you understood that going out there and even trying could mean that you would, might lose a job, you might lose your bank accounts or credit, or they might kill you. So the Voting Rights Act was instrumental in uh, trying to fight back against this atmosphere of fear and against these uh, race-neutral, ostensibly race-neutral laws. And so I, I, want, I want to talk about the, 
the effect of all of these things that happened before uh, the VRA on on African Americans, and I and I want to kind of switch to a more personal narrative, which is one of the ways in your story that you kind of illuminate the power of uh, the VRA. Uh, but but I I have been telling this story for for a bit now about my own father who was born in uh, 1933 uh, in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, grows up and joins the Air Force uh, during the Korean War, goes and serves his country uh, during wartime. Uh, after the war, he moves back to Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, and as a veteran, as a war veteran, he is denied uh, the right to vote. Uh, he is denied the right to vote for uh, at least another uh, 12 or 13 years before uh, the VRA is passed. Uh, and I tell that story because, uh, or I, I should say I've been telling that story more recently uh, because I think it's important to note that this is not some ancient ancestor that I read about in a book somewhere or saw pictures of. Uh, this is the first man I knew in the world. And his experience, his life, was framed in many ways uh, by the kind of discrimination that, that that took place in the South, not just with voting rights, but but all kinds of other things that he was not able to do until he moved uh, uh, north. I, I think there's not an African American alive today who doesn't have similar stories about uh, their immediate relatives, people who came just before them. Uh, who experienced this kind of discrimination. And in your piece, you write about uh, your, your your mother, who's born in 1964, uh, just a year before uh, the VRA is passed. And as you frame it, uh, she, she and the VRA kind of grew up together, side by side. Uh, talk about what that means uh, in the context of your thinking about the VRA and your life. Yeah. Um, so I wrote this piece uh, sort of as I was working through grief and trying to process and still am trying to process uh, my mother's death in November. Uh, it, it, she was 56 and, you know, that's a young age. But I really started thinking about all of the eras, all of the important historical events that her life bookended and it became clear to me uh, sort of that her life was so instrumental in, in my focus on voting rights. She was born not just in 64 in Mississippi, she was born in uh, during Freedom Summer, a couple blocks away from uh, the headquarters of all the organizations that were in, in, uh, instituting Freedom Summer in Greenville, Mississippi. Mm. And when I really got to thinking about it, it made me realize if she is, you know, she's, she was young and she was 23, 24 when she had me, that means democracy, as I would lay, as I would name it, was only 23 when I was born. And then that will sort of realization made me rethink all these interactions I'd had with older folks in my family, with my grandmother, uh, whose house I went to uh, during the summer, thinking about how she was a fully grown woman before she was protected under law, mm -hmm. uh, her ability to vote. Thinking about my great-grandparents, I, I knew most of my great-grandparents as a child and how a lot of them were grandparents before they were legally protected in their ability to vote. When you, when you do that kind of reframing, then you realize not only is this all very new, it's not as durable as we like to imagine. The, conversely, it means the era of the absolute worst oppression under Jim Crow, that kind of law, that kind of jurisprudence, that kind of malice in uh, policy and politics. That was a blink of an eye ago. When you think about that, you know, it really makes you question uh, the uh, people's faith in our trajectory towards progress, towards uh, opening up democracy. It makes us realize that 
I believe uh, we can go back to that moment really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the history of the VRA since it has passed uh, has been a history of, of challenge and struggle uh, all the way. I mean, the, it, it almost never gets a chance to fully take root before uh, those who basically uh, want to disenfranchise black people, still disenfranchise black people, start trying to take it apart. Right. Uh, one thing I, I really stress in the piece is uh, all these norms we take for granted in terms of being able to vote, in terms of early voting, in terms of registration, they were all negotiated. They were all built, chipped away, evolved over time in the face of extreme opposition over the last 55 years. That has never gone away. The things we've seen recently with trying to roll back voting rights, with trying to uh, encourage more aggressive gerrymanders, with, with trying to push back against the fabric of the VRA, those things are not new. And they have very nearly been successful at certain points. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the fight against those things, it wasn't like uh, the VRA was passed and everybody said, let's, you know, link our arms and sing Kumbaya. Uh, <laughs> This became immediately the another battleground, and it's one that a lot of our politics are uh, played on and fought today. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Van Newkirk II. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of the podcast Floodlines. His recent piece for The Atlantic is titled American Democracy is Only 55 Years Old and Hanging by a Thread. And that piece is part of the publication series Inheritance, which is an effort to explore uh, and celebrate uh, the experiences and the legacies of African-Americans that have largely been left out of the historical narrative uh, in this country. As always, we'd love to hear from you during this conversation. Uh, call and tell us what the right to vote means to you and the ways you identify with being a citizen uh, in this country, a full citizen of this country. Mm -hmm. Do you remember or do you have family stories about trying to vote as an African-American before the Voting Rights Act, uh, especially in the American South? Uh, what was that like? Uh, in what ways did voting now, does voting now sort of remind you of the importance of getting over that hump in 1965 uh, to the point where the law was at least ostensibly on the side of the African-American franchise? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll, we'll work you into the conversation. Also, give us a call and let us know what you think of the modern debate about voting. Uh, here in the state of Michigan, we really changed uh, the way that we vote uh, a few years ago and expanded ways for people to vote to make it easier for people to vote. And we've seen uh, the number of people who show up on Election Day uh, or who vote early by uh, absentee ballot. We've seen those numbers really grow. There are a lot of people who think uh, that's not OK. There are a lot of people who push back against those changes. And then, of course, after the November election, what we saw was a national assault uh, on those changes here in Michigan, suggesting that somehow it had led to massive fraud, uh, somehow uh, people voting who shouldn't have voted, people who voted who didn't exist, all of those things. Uh, give us a call and let us know what you think about voting rights in the context uh, of that argument as well. Again, 313-577-1019 is, uh, is, the, is the number here on the phones. Uh, Van, I, I want to get you to react to the things that we just saw unfold uh, in our country around voting rights uh, after the November uh, election. Here in Detroit, of course, it was very clear that this was this was a questioning of the black franchise. Uh, people didn't go to uh, suburban Detroit to challenge votes. They didn't go to rural Michigan uh, to challenge votes. They came to the blackest city 
uh, in the state, uh, one of the one of the largest uh, majority African American cities uh, in the country. To us, uh, that seemed a real echo of the pushback against the VRA itself. Yeah, you look at not just Detroit. You look at all the cities where that were uh, the central sites of big challenges and were the face of sort of the rhetoric uh, of uh, people crying about voter fraud. It was Detroit. It was Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. It was Philadelphia. It was Atlanta. And obviously those are all heavily black cities and ones where have always been caught in this uh, sort of story of big black votes within the cities, uh, basically surging against a greater statewide uh, population that tends to vote more conservatively. And the rhetoric that came out about that, people being just automatically skeptical that black folks could even vote at this rate, that, that this historical turnout had to be fraudulent, even without any evidence it just had to be taken as an article of faith that uh, this level of interest in voting had to be somehow illegitimate. That is, that's the oldest disenfranchising rhetoric in the book. Literally, it's, uh, that is what underpinned lots of opposition to Reconstruction even. It's what was uh, being passed around in 1898 when Wilmington, North Carolina's government was overthrown. It was the core of the opposition to the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. So this idea that black voting is inherently fraudulent, uh, that it is inherently illegitimate, that you know, letting black people vote means you're going to open up all the, the, the floodgates for dead folks voting, for people voting out of, out of precinct, that you're going to erase the orderly way that things have been done. This is... It's been around for centuries now. And uh, so it's interesting from a historical uh, standpoint, seeing people roll out the same exact playbook again, again, without any uh, shreds of evidence. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was really disturbing for me, at least, was how easily that narrative took root among so many people. As you point out, there was never any evidence produced to suggest that there was fraudulent voting. And in fact, for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, election officials produced evidence that uh, that showed that there wasn't any kind of fraudulent voting. And yet the numbers of people who believed then and even believe now, I heard a statistic this morning that 65 percent, for instance, of uh, Christian conservative evangelicals believe that Joe Biden is not the legitimately elected president of the United States and that there was massive voter fraud in the November election. I mean, it, it was such a it was such an appealing concept instantly to so many people that it it really, I thought, draws attention to how how recent the whole idea of legitimate black voting is and that there still is this sort of underpinning of suspicion uh, and doubt uh, and and resentment of the idea that uh, that African Americans can uh, can cast can cast votes and be be full citizens in in this country yeah the durability of this law really speaks to uh, sort of uh, over time and, and the readiness of people to accept it really speak to uh, how it plays a central role in, in, in uh, our racial consciousness. So if you have been raised or have been steeped in this idea that black folks are somehow, you know, less capable that they are somehow less trustworthy, that they have less civic pride, then you're going to be way more primed to uh, accept that it's impossible for them to come out and vote in, in, in droves. And if you have been living a life where, thanks to residential housing segregation, you never see Black folks, all the people you know are, you know, vote like you, mm -hmm. 
then it becomes that much easier to believe that all those votes over there, are, those, are, those are phantom votes. There's no way those people could have outvoted us. Every single sort of piece of the leftover machinery or whatever you want to call it of uh, racism, of institutional racism, uh, those things build toward a collective mindset where it becomes normal, natural, eminently reasonable to question black politics. And that's what happened in 1965. It's what happens today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. We are going to continue this conversation with Van Newkirk II uh, about his piece in The Atlantic, uh, about the inheritance project at The Atlantic, and specifically about voting rights. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us what you think of the current assault on voting rights in this country. Tell us if you remember the historical assaults on voting rights for African-Americans in this country. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Van Newkirk II. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of the podcast, Floodlines. He has a piece in The Atlantic in the March 2021 issue of The Atlantic titled, uh, American Democracy is Only 55 Years Old and Hanging by a Thread. It's part of the publication series, Inheritance, which is taking a look at the legacy and experiences of black Americans that have been largely left out of the history books and of the narrative of this uh, country and its history. Uh, We'd love to hear from you uh, about voting rights, which is the subject of uh, Van's piece, uh, how recently uh, this country has embrace the idea of full democracy by extending the franchise and enforcing the extension of that franchise to African-Americans. We're also talking about how much assault we've seen on those rights since 1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed, and especially what we've seen just in the last few months since the 2020 presidential election where uh, the loss for Donald Trump inspired a massive Uh, assault on the votes of African-Americans here in the city of Detroit and other majority black cities around the country, Uh, people saying that somehow those votes had to be fraudulent, that somehow uh, there was no way uh, we produced the numbers of votes that we did, mostly for Joe Biden. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Anne in Waterford. Anne, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me okay? We sure can. Okay. Uh, as I told your young man to answer the phone, I'm 81. I grew up in a small southern town. Uh, I witnessed what it was like when black people could not vote at all. Mm. They made up reasons, but they, what it boiled down to, they were, were not able to vote. Uh, my father was a lawyer. My mother was a school teacher. They both worked very hard to undo that. And uh, what I'm witnessing right now is the same thing. Different name, but same thing. It's a simple racism. That's all it is. It's racism, and it's white men trying to hang on to power because they're afraid of losing the power. It's not because they really believe what black people are inferior. It's, it's just wanting to hang on to power, and it's ugly, and uh, I'm embarrassed by it that it's still happening. And we need to try and do everything we can to keep, prevent this from happening. As you pointed out, the only places that the Republican Party wanted to investigate voter fraud were the areas where black people are in the majority. Mm-hmm. And anybody that can ignore that is fooling themselves. Yeah. Uh, Thank Anne, you for listening. And I really love that you called, uh, and especially that you shared 
the memories you have from growing up in in the rural South uh, before the Voting Rights Act was was passed. Uh, as I said earlier, um, I, I think for African Americans in particular, uh, it's impossible to escape that history because it's just part of our families. It's just part of what people have experienced, and m- those people are often still around or or were when we were uh, when we were children. Um, but but this is a great example uh, of the experience that many white Americans also can call on uh, uh, and remember. So, Anne, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette. Hi, Stephen. I want to say two things. The first is when I um, felt like a citizen for the first time, I had to leave the country to feel like a citizen. Upon my return with my passport in hand, I was welcomed by an immigration officer at Customs Mm. who said, welcome home. Wow. That's when I felt like a citizen. And in regards to voting, it was during the first election of Barack Obama that the polling place, which is normally uh, quite looking like a ghost town, was lined with people (laughs) that I had never seen. People were taking pictures with their children. And then we had those dreadful poll watchers who would stand by, uh, stand behind the registrars at the uh, polling place, to, uh, I thought, to intimidate me. I had my passport then, and I uh, came in the building saying, hello, citizens. <laughs> and then waving my passport, I said, don't start no stuff, won't be no stuff. <laughs> Bernadette, I love those stories, both of them. Uh, thanks so much for calling and, and sharing them. Uh, Van Newkirk, uh, in 2008, uh, you voted for the very first time and voted for uh, Barack Obama. Talk about what that signified for you and uh, how that differed uh, from what that moment might have meant to your mother. Well, I just want to acknowledge, uh, first of all, I think stories like Bernadette's are just so important. Um, and uh that's sort of the purpose of what we're doing with inheritance. I think all those type of stories from folks uh, who had normal, regular, everyday brush brush ups, brush uh, brushes against uh, all these major historical institutions that we've talked about, that's what's important and how it shapes people's lives and perceptions. Um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so uh, 2008 was uh, my first time voting. Uh, it was a very important moment for uh, for me beyond the, the actual beyond the candidate uh, because it was I had gone with my mother every two years, uh, every, even you know between that for municipal stuff. Mm-hmm. She voted every single election she could. And uh, I would always go with her and see how important it was to her. And it was kind of like some people promised their mothers are going to go to college and we're going to do uh, X and Y. For me, I promised her I was going to vote. And uh, <laughs> it was very important <laughs> to her. And she was so uh, just excited about uh, Barack Obama in 2008 because I really, again, I think about her life, think about what she might have believed was possible based on where she was born, the circumstances under which she was born. And yeah, I don't don't think having a Black president, having the ability to vote for a Black candidate even, was something that would have been in uh, her her realm of possibilities, her imagination uh, growing up. So seeing the world expand so much for her, it, it meant a lot to me. And and when you cast that vote, I mean, it's interesting that that, that was your first election. Uh, talk about the power of being able to cast that vote for an African-American man. So I think about it this way. I think about the fact that as my mother when my mother was born, it was under no circumstances guaranteed that she would be able to vote as an adult. And by no means certain that her children, her grandchildren, her descendants would be able to vote. 
So let's just back up. The fact that I was able to go to a precinct, I was then in Atlanta. I was able to go to a precinct in Georgia, hmm. cast a ballot of my own. I was not bothered by anyone. It was not uh, a huge process to do it. I just went out and voted. That very fact stood in opposition to centuries of policy mm. in America. The fact that I was able to go out and do it with a community, with her, and talking to her about it, that it was normal at that point, that the communities were able to go out and vote at such a level that in some places and perhaps across the board, they eclipsed white turnout. That was an incredible moment in history. And I think you add to it the fact that all those votes added up to uh, a, a black president. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's almost like the, the icing on the cake at that point. Mm. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, Van, before we get back to listeners, I want to talk just a little about um, what's changed in terms of uh, the, the sort of framework for the VRA. Uh, you point out that it was always uh, incomplete. First, talk about why you say that. Um, and then talk about uh, the work, for instance, of someone like Stacey Abrams, which I think is, you know, 55 years later, really putting, um, you know, putting flesh to bone uh, of that framework in a way that probably needed to be done much earlier, but but is paying incredible uh, uh, dividends right now. I mean, uh, the, when you look at what happened in Georgia in January, for instance, um, you know, there's no way that happens without not only the VRA, but also this this other real activism uh, to, to, to make it real. Yeah. So one thing that is important to remember is that, uh, OK, if I'm saying this era of democracy began with the Voting Rights Act, we have to remember the Voting Rights Act is just, it's a piece of legislation. Now there's a robust body of court decisions and additional legislation that have added to it. Uh, but at its core, it's as fragile, say, as uh, the Affordable Care Act, which we know was under uh, pressure for years and years and still could be overturned by, by court decisions. And uh, or, or say the Republican tax cut, which uh, Democrats are pledging to reverse in some cases. So, like, you think about all of the legislation that that is passed, that is repealed, that goes back and forth and how malleable it is. That's exactly how malleable the shape of democracy in America is and how at risk it is. So when you start with that framework, then you understand the Voting Rights Act uh, couldn't do everything uh, that is sort of possible under constitutional power in America to protect black folks' right to vote. Now, it did not do anything about uh, people with felonies protecting uh, them or, say, expanding the vote to people who are in prison. It uh, could not foresee every single device that was going to be tried out to uh, to get rid of black votes and say today where we have say big data sets that allow people with more and more precision to target, to find things that can be reasonable proxies for say, if you are a black voter that don't explicitly mention your race and then they can try to use those things to uh, deny your right to vote. So, you know, moving polling locations, uh, certain other, other things that are not, based on your race, but we know that uh, statistically, most are they're more likely now to affect black folks. The VRA did not have computers in mind <laughs> when it was uh, when it was written. And so it is always it's always been sort of uh, a lagging solution to the innovations of voter suppression. Mm. And we have relied, on a concert of that legislation, of updating it in Congress, 
of making sure that people are vigilant about forms of discrimination that they can add to legislation, uh, of, say, the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division being aggressive in enforcing voting rights, and in courts consistently interpreting the Voting Rights Act at its most expansive uh, possibility and giving it more and more teeth to come to combat uh, ever-evolving voter suppression. That's the only way this entire era works. And up until 2013, up until very recently, you could say for the most part, it did the job. But I think right now we're in a place where I don't know if we can trust it to that, that, that constellation of factors to continue doing that job. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about voting rights, its history, and its present and future uh, in this country. And we'll hear more from you, the listeners, Dave and Troy, Charlie and Ferndale, Paul and Royal Oak. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We've also got some social media comments that we'll share. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Just when you think things are going smoothly, something always goes wrong. For WDET, the problem is now our transmitter. Over the past few weeks, serious problems have surfaced with our 21-year-old main transmitter. They're only supposed to last 15 to 20 years, so I guess we got our money's worth, your money's worth. While we wait for a repair part, we've been on the backup transmitter, which is no spring chicken at 34 years old. Some FM listeners can hear a buzz. The buzz is from really old capacitors that are performing erratically in our really old backup transmitter. We want to sound excellent for you. We're sorry if we do not. Succession planning for radio transmitters is such that when it's time to get a new transmitter, the former main transmitter becomes the backup. We're doing a few more diagnostics to be sure, but we think it's time for a new transmitter. We'll be asking for your help to buy one during the March fundraiser, or you can always give now at WDET.org. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Van Newkirk II. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and host of the podcast Floodlines. His recent piece for The Atlantic is titled American Democracy is Only 55 Years Old and Hanging by a Thread. It is part of the series called Inheritance that's running in The Atlantic uh, that seeks to explore and uncover Uh, Lots of the experiences and legacy of black Americans that's left out largely of of our history books. We want to hear from you this hour as well. We're talking about the Voting Rights Act, the uh, effect that that had on fulfilling the American democratic process, the, uh, the challenges that it faces, the challenges that voting and expanded voting uh, face in this country. Uh, what do you make of all of those things? What do you think about when you think about uh, the, the the franchise in our country? What do you think of the assault on that franchise that we saw right here in southeast Michigan after the 2020 presidential election? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Paul in Royal Oak. Paul, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Stephen. Hey, Paul. Can you hear me? I can. Stephen, can you hear me? I sure can. All right, great, great. Yeah, hey, just I want to just let you know how much I appreciate your show and what you do in terms of providing a local perspective and a racial equity perspective that, you know, you just, you know, it's real important for for everyone in Metro Detroit to get. So thank you. Thank I you appreciate for that. that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that a couple days after the election, I was just like, okay, I got to go to Fox.com just to check out what the other side's seeing or hearing. And 
picked up this uh, interview with Carl Rove, which really just was unbelievable. I got more information from this interview, um, where Carl, and it focused on Wayne County, well, not Wayne County, Detroit, and, and Milwaukee and Georgia, you know, and just in terms of, like, you know, where, where the vote was at. And, and he went into the detail about the precincts within Detroit and how, you know, yeah, it wasn't perfect, but, I mean, he, he acknowledged the fact that, you know, voters, the number of ballots didn't, didn't necessarily match the number of votes, but per precinct, in most cases, it was less than four, and at the most, it was 25 or 29 or something like that. In total, it might be 100 votes off. And, and it's really, really unfortunate that, you know, sometimes I think the, the key takeaway is that we, we kind of gloss over the fact that there are these mistakes or anomalies, but we, we really have to acknowledge them and then acknowledge, you know, how insignificant they are mm-hmm. in order to be able to combat the, the lies that are coming from the other side. Because usually those conspiracies come from a little thread of, of, of truth that then gets exaggerated to the nth degree. So right, right. That, that's what I wanted to share. Uh, Paul, I, I, I so. do, I do appreciate, uh, uh, I do appreciate the call and, and the perspective. You know, I, I would encourage anybody who's interested in seeing um, some really great data about what happened here in Michigan in November to go to uh, the New York Times website where uh, they posted a map of uh, precinct by precinct, the swing between uh, votes in 2016 for president and uh, and 2020 uh, for Do- for Donald Trump. Uh, and w- what you see when you look at that map actually is uh, that the president lost the election in the Detroit suburbs. Uh, white voters who had voted for him in uh, 2016 voted for somebody else in 2020. And in fact. Uh, the president got more votes in 2020 in the city of Detroit than he did in 2016. And Joe Biden ended up with fewer votes than Hillary Clinton got out of the city of Detroit. Uh, So the idea that there is some sort of fraud that took place among black voters uh, in the city right there is kind of laid bare as uh, as absurd. I mean, just factually unsubstantiated. And yet, of course, there are lots of people who still uh, who are still talking about the fact that they think uh, there was some some huge cheating scandal uh, here in the city of Detroit. So, uh, Paul, again, thanks very much for uh, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, Van Newkirk, we've got a, a question uh, from a, a listener, Janet, who is a, a local bookseller here in Detroit. She wants us to talk about the secret ballot and how important that was for black voters, uh, especially in the North. Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, the secret ballot was a very important uh, sort of development in uh, thinking about uh the course of democracy in America, because up until we had secret ballots, it was not just possible, but the norm that people would go sort of vote out in the open, that people would know what your vote was, that uh, to get the communities would uh, basically be built on who voted for whom. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a kind of tricky proposition when it comes to black voters, (laughs) because if, say, your employers are able to know who you voted for, uh, then it becomes, even if Black folks are able to vote, which was the case in, in lots of northern cities, uh, either you're going to be faced the potential of losing your job if you vote for the wrong candidate, or workplaces with large amounts of Black workers are going to be able to basically uh, coerce them into voting for their preferred candidate, often in exchange for, uh, you know, some kickbacks or a little bit of support from the politician. So that was the state of things. And uh, I think without the secret ballot, a lot of the reforms of the civil rights era would not have been able to stick. Mm. Because if you can go out and vote, because I mean, even with secret ballots, it was difficult to say, keep uh, employers from barring you uh, from firing you if they knew or suspected that you voted for the wrong person. Uh, so it was important in that moment in history 
And uh, obviously there are some people who believe that uh, the secret ballot has sort of uh, contributed to polarization in America now because uh, you can basically vote uh, you, you can buy all these conspiracy theories and vote in secret for your conspiracy theorist candidate and not tell anybody and nobody will know. Um, there's no public embarrassment factor. But you also do have to consider the coercion factor, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, uh, Janet, uh, thanks very much for calling in uh, and, and asking that question. Uh, Michael on Twitter wonders if there is any relationship between Citizens United uh, and the VRA and black voting, specific, specifically money in politics, how big it is uh, and uh, how big money can spend even more because of uh, Citizens United. Yeah, so I actually think that Citizens United, that uh, all of these developments that have allowed uh, money and corporations to be more influential in politics, those are the other side of the coin for uh, of laws that reduce the power of, say, the black vote, of people on the margins, the power of their vote. Because if you go back and look again at the 60s, it's not like 1963 America was one where uh, sort of while black poor folks couldn't vote, their white poor uh, people on the other side of the line were able to do whatever they wanted. A lot of the societies where black people were unable to vote, uh, voted in the lowest numbers, they were dominated by local businesses, in many cases, plantations. And they were dominated by money and politics. So you look at uh, today, you look at citizens, you look at uh, sort of reforms that have allowed more money to go into redistricting, re, uh, gerrymandering campaigns. Uh, uh, you look at the rise of, say, tech corporations as local political players. They are the people gaining most from the reduction of political strength of racial minorities. They, you know, you, you, if you think of political power as a pie, uh, if some people are being denied their slice, it goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to John in Midtown. John. Welcome to the show. Hey, hello. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Hey, I, I used to work a night cleaning job, and I have to say the podcast that got me through was NWAP and Detroit Today, so it's, it's kind of dope hearing the both of you together. So that was all. Thanks, guys. John, I really appreciate that. That was very nice. Uh, that was very nice of you to call uh, and say. Let's go to Dave and Troy. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey. I just wanted to, you to touch base on how much importance it is for the young people to vote and what, you know, like Stacey Abrams had done down in Atlanta there. I mean, it, it's true that, you know, there was restrictions and stuff, but it's so, so important for people to vote, mm -hmm. you know, just to exercise their right. And when you see what happened with, like, Barack Obama, it motivated everybody. And you saw it with Donald Trump, it motivated. And hopefully we can continue this on in the future because yeah. that's really, really the most important thing is to actually exercise your right to vote. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to say. And uh, I appreciate you taking my call. Dave, thank you very much for the call and, and the comments. Um, Van, we've only got a couple minutes left. But in the, in the vein of what uh, Dave is talking about, getting people, more people, uh, to vote, making it easier, getting more protection. Uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Ad Advancement Act uh, and its legislative sibling, the For the People Act, uh, would mean, I think, strengthening uh, that encouragement to, to vote. Talk about those two, those two laws. Yeah. Um, shout out to John uh, for that shout out earlier. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I think... The big pieces of democratic and uh, good governance reforms that are uh, on the table right now are the, are the those two acts that you mentioned, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and uh, the For the People Act. And they uh, would, uh, the, John, the John Lewis uh, bill would uh, essentially refashion the pieces of the VRA that have been uh, sort of uh, 
defanged and canceled out by the 2013 Shelby County decision, mm-hmm. they would reinstitute uh, federal preclearance of districts that have been shown to discriminate against black folks and other uh, minorities. And uh, they would create uh, the first in eight years now, real preemptive way to stop uh, disenfranchising laws from taking root without uh, requiring the people either be discriminated against first or constant effort from non-government actors. The For the People Act would essentially enshrine lots of the ways that we know uh, the ballot has been expanded and, and been made more useful to people. Uh, it would create standards for redistricting. It would uh, allow uh, people sort of more uh, options in terms of early voting, in terms of automatic registration. It would essentially streamline the process and get rid of lots of the ways that uh, people have been denied the vote through uh, bureaucracy. Mm, yeah. And those, while I do not think we should stop there, I think we need to go on and think about making a binding constitutional amendment. Uh, I think those things are have to be the first step in that process. Yeah. Uh, because the last few years have seen states implement more and more aggressive anti-democracy. Uh, Rollbacks, yeah. No, yeah. Question. no question. That's where we got to go. Okay. Van Newkirk II of The Atlantic, great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for me. I'll be back Monday when we're going to talk with organizational psychologist Adam Grant to talk about his new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.